kings and Lord of lords, we praise you for who you are, for the life that you have given us in your name. Lord, we praise you for the gathering of the people of God and for the privilege to look into the word and to sing these songs of the new life and to order our life together by your word. I pray that we would hear it, that we would heed it, that you would move in a way among us that is beyond what human beings could accomplish here together. I pray that we would be instructed, convicted, and helped in our walk with Christ. I pray for those who do not know him in that way and ask that you would continue to point them to saving faith and to the new birth. For those who have experienced that new birth, for those of us who are striving to persevere in the faith, I pray that you'll build us and deepen us in our time together. And then as we gather around the the table, that we would hear, announce, and testify to our relationship with you, that we have entered your rest through saving faith in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Shamua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Navi, Geuel. You may think I'm speaking Hebrew, in a sense I am. You might think I've lost my mind, and perhaps I have. But I've simply read a list of Hebrew names. I'm going to ask that you participate with me here for a moment. Raise your hand confidently, way up high. Four questions, not by deduction, but when I read those names, is there anybody here that could say, I know exactly who they are? Anybody? (laughs) Eight times. (laughs) I will. Those names, has anybody ever heard a boy or a man named Shamua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Navi, Geuel? Does anybody know someone named? Any one of those names? One? You know, that wasn't confident. Way up. <laughs> there it is. One, two, three. We got three that have know somebody named one of those names. Let me ask question three. How many of you can identify Caleb and Joshua in the Old Testament? Come on. You know. Look at that. Pretty much everybody. Have you ever known someone named Caleb or Joshua? Thank you. Caleb and Joshua are Hebrew names just as strange to English as these other names. With this difference, Caleb and Joshua trusted God to take Israel into the promised land of Canaan. These other ten men said, no way, count me out. Isn't that interesting? To this day, we continue to use the very familiar names of Caleb and Joshua who trusted God to enter his rest in Canaan. 
Now for us to catch up with the original recipients of the book of Hebrews as we come again to chapter 3 today, we need to bring with us, we need to get two passages lodged in our minds. The first is Numbers chapter 14, the historical account of Israel's refusal to trust God and enter the rest of Canaan. These ten names, these ten spies said we cannot do this. We will not trust God's word. We will not enter into that land. And in Numbers 14, we have Moses saying, please, as he speaks praise to God for Israel, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And God says, the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. They will not receive the land. They will not be permitted to enter. Unbelief led to their failure. Second passage, that's Numbers 14, second passage is Psalm 95. Several hundred years after the events of Numbers 14, King David reflected on Israel's colossal spiritual failure in that passage. And he challenged his readers never to repeat Israel's rejection of God's offer of rest. Do not do what Israel did there. So Numbers 14 where they fail to enter, Psalm 95, hundreds of years later, appealing to this same situation. So the, uh, the re- recipients of this book would have been very familiar with Numbers 14 and Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, David insisted that a kind of rest in God remained open to believers in his day. So the author of Hebrews felt free then to insist that such an invitation remains open to us on this side of the cross under a new covenant. So is the author saying, enter into this rest, is the author saying, go to, fly to Israel and purchase land there, buy a home? Clearly not. But the author is saying springboarding off of David's use of Numbers 14 in Psalm 95, the author bolsters the same appeal with a reference to God's rest on day 7 of the creative week. Now hang on. It's, it's a bit sophisticated, the whole argument here. We'll return to that thought later. But simply said, the author tugs at this thematic thread of spiritual rest for God's people. So you have Numbers 14, quoted hundreds of years later, calling God's people to enter the rest of God in Psalm 95. This author goes back even further to Genesis 2 and pulls on that thread of rest in God, which is there for all time for God's people. And he develops it here in this passage. So the heart of the matter is... In a manner of speaking, you stand in Israel's sandals. You too must enter the rest of God. It is for us today 
to enter that rest. We see the example of Israel in their failure, and so we take to heart this call. We face the decision to walk in obedient trust in God's Word and to continue doing so by following Jesus until we enter His presence on the final day. Now, one more introductory point. Let's remember that the promised land did not look like rest for Israel. What did it look like? It looked like war. It looked dangerous. It was beyond their capacities as a nearly unarmed nation of ex-slaves, unschooled in war, coming against a well, well-equipped armies venturing out from walled cities. That's the rest they're entering into. Indeed, for the people of God, life is always war in this life. From the fall to the consummation, spiritual warfare will persist. And in that spiritual battle, every one of us faces the temptation to trust our own ideas, not God's, to seek rest in this world's wisdom, not His word, and to identify with this world not walk forward in faithful dependence on Christ. Your faith, follower of Jesus, is under that assault all the time. We are, in a manner of speaking, we look into that promised land and we see giants and walled cities and armies. We see an attack against our faith at every turn. It's going to look dangerous. It's going to be beyond our capacities, but we must enter that rest in trust in God. This is the thesis of the author here in these verses that we'll look at today. So Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 are penned to keep us on the path of faithful obedience all the way home, all the way to glory. The author marshals this thesis, first of all, with this point, be warned God's promise of rest was tragically rejected by Israel. It's going to really continue to get us to think on this rejection and the tragedy of it. Let's go back to verse 7, which we considered last week, but Hebrews 3 and verse 7, as he draws here from Numbers 14. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hit, I said Numbers 14. That's the background. This is Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So David in Psalm 95, in fact, the psalm ends there. They will not enter my rest. It is a, a tragic situation, a heart-wrenching situation. How should God's people respond to this? Verses 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. To have a soft heart toward the word of God. To be responsive to it and not hardened to it. There's a thousand ways that we can grow callous toward God's Word. We may become enamored with the world's philosophies. And the Bible just begins to be dull next to these exciting truths. We may grow indifferent to God's truth and to life 
of his church to just become dull and hard. We can be caught in a web of sin, and sin can harden our hearts. There's many, many ways. But here's the sober consideration. They shall not enter my rest. It's a direct reference to Numbers 14 and the ten leaders the majority of Israelites who rejected the word of promise. How does the author apply this psalm now to his readers so many years later? Notice verses 12 and 13. Here it is. And these verses are kind of an early and robust first point of application, which we'll find in fuller form in chapter 4. But let's uh, take this instruction to heart. Verse 12. Take care then, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. To fall away from the living God is to pull off the path of obedience to Christ, to reject Christ before we enter into His presence. Last week, we remember the author of Hebrews generally, if not exclusively, looks forward on the journey ahead. Not so much backward, There's not a consideration here of look back to the moment of your conversion, but rather look to the present at where you are and are you tracking toward the rest of God ultimately? How does the author apply this psalm? Here it is. Verse 12, do not fall away from the living God. As opposed to that, verse 13 but rather exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'd like to sit on this a long time. It would be a great sermon all in itself. But the local church is meant to form a spiritual family in which we speak words of encouragement and correction to help us remain vigilant against the deceitfulness of sin. Now think of this. Concentrate on it. The Holy Spirit insists that our greatest threat is the deceptive powers of sinful thinking. That's the threat to our souls. Deceptive powers of sinful thinking, of sinful actions, of sinful goals, of sinful influences that worm their way into our affections and dominate our focus. The local church is designed by God then to function as a communal hedge against this deception. For us to speak the truth to one another, to hear the Word of God opened up in assembly, and for us to continue to come back to the words of God. You're not hearing the words of God out there on the street every day. You're hearing very different messages, but for us to gather on the Lord's day and at other times around the Word and to hear that Word proclaimed is utterly essential. So that the sinful influences of this world do not worm their way into our affections and dominate our focus. There's nothing less at stake than our eternal salvation. The local church designed by God to function as this hedge. Now, the emphasis on the absolute necessity of persevering in faith is is made more pointed at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. We have come to be partners in Christ. If, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You cannot follow Jesus for a little while, and that's credited to you for eternity. We must follow Christ 
to the end, all the way home. It's not we who keep ourselves saved, of course, but Hebrews emphasizes our responsibility to partner with Christ in our salvation. That means to trust Him for salvation and to follow Him in obedience in the outworking of our sanctification. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, but He brings it to completion in part by our active participation in the pursuit of sanctification. In verse 15, the author then appeals again to Psalm 95. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Meditating on Numbers 14, he asks now three questions, answering rhetorically. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? That rest there, what is that? What's the rest? It's a reference to entering into the promised land, but there's something more to it, of course. What was Israel's fundamental problem? Here it is. What was at the heart of their rejection? These ten names that we addressed that we, that we mentioned, and those who followed them. What was at the heart of their failure? Verse 19 is the answer. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It was not because of the giants. It was not because of the cities. It was not because of the warriors that were there. It was because of unbelief in God. That's why they did not enter. So the sin that tragically kept them from entering God's rest was unbelief. God, they determined, could not bring them in. His word, they they determined, could not be trusted. His word was not sufficient for the situation. And it's really no different with us. We sin because we we fail to heed the voice of Christ we saw last week, being ultimately the New Testament. Is this straightforward conception of the Christian walk accurate? Is what I'm saying accurate? Is it really just that straightforward about trusting God? Well, we come to the second idea. Be warned as you look back, but be vigilant as you look forward. God's promise of rest remains open to us. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Notice verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It is that simple. Entering his rest still stands. There is a rest, it's left somewhat undefined, and it's resulted in a lot of debate as to what this rest actually is. But I think the key is to see the whole extent of salvation. There is a past element in our conversion. But there is a, a, a process of salvation and an ultimate consummation of salvation. So theologians talk often of the already but not yet. We are saved but not yet. There is a final consummation. And, in, and I think that's where the author is tracking. So he says today... That is, there is a a present application to the rest of God. It's not just our entrance into eternity. 
But there is also that final aspect, the consummating victory to our salvation in the world to come. 11.16 and 12.28 will be emphasized later in the book. So rest seems to be a rather complex, full-orbed reference to trusting God at his word, obeying him to the end of our journey toward glory, putting our confidence in him, in fellowship with him all the way home. So that's the word rest. Now notice the phrase, let us fear. Verse 1, chapter 4, let us fear. That phrase is actually at the beginning of the Greek phrase, of the Greek sentence. It starts with, let us fear, for emphasis. And if you have a different translation than fear, fear is the better translation. Some translations kind of modify because they don't want us to think in terms of fearing God. Perhaps, and, and, and I realize the word can be problematic because we're not in a shaking fear of God where there's no relationship. But he uses this word, I think, very purposefully. Let us fear. We should walk in our Christian life with a sense of the fear of God, with a deep reverence for Him, acknowledging the dangers that can come if we walk away. So let us fear. We should tremble at the power of sin to pull us away from the living God. We should fear God lest we fail to continue in persevering faith and thus fail to enter the ultimate stage of that faith in eternity. Here again the author compares Christians with Israel, Numbers 14 and verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter 4, For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were, not, it was, they were not united by faith with those who listened. That last phrase, you see the marginal reading to be taken that they did not respond in faith to the word or that they did not respond in faith together. Uh, either way, the point is, is really the same. And that is that they failed to listen. They failed to heed the word of God. They failed to enter that promised land. The good news came to us. That's the message of Jesus crucified and risen and the rest that is in him. The good news came to them. That was, this is the land I've promised you. Enter into it. But they did not enter that rest of God due to unbelief. We're back to Psalm 95 again, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's a, that's a curious phrase there at the end of verse 3. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. But I think where he's moving here now is into Genesis 2. So remember I said there's that thread, that theme of rest. We find it in Numbers 14. We find it in Psalm 95. But what the author does here is really profound. He says, we really find it at the very beginning. For on the seventh day of creation, God rested. He rested and hallowed the day on which he did nothing, which he created nothing. And so we understand that from the Genesis account, that there is a continuing rest that God calls us to enter into with him. So the author moves there, verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken, that is in the book of Genesis, of the seventh day in this way. 
And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now he's linking that with verse 5 again in this passage of Psalm 95. He said, they shall not enter my rest. Pointing back to Numbers 14. So, this exhortation is calibrated to this theme of rest that runs through the Bible. And to this theme of the rest of God that we we find our rest in him permanently. And so he links the matter again to the word rest in Psalm 95 here in verse 5. Again, this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, here's the point, verse 6. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, this is the point in the sermon. It happens in my sermons. It happens in sermons you hear from others. And it's happening in this sermon here. Is this is kind of the point in the sermon where you go, I think we got this. He just keeps bringing it back again and again and again and again. We got it. We, uh, again? He's really serious. You have got to take this to heart. What was going on with them when they rejected the word of God is what can be going on in your heart and your life. You may be in that same place. Do not harden your heart. Don't let it get calloused to the truth of, to the truth of God. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If Joshua had given them rest, if he'd taken them into the promised land in Numbers 14, or even afterwards, that was Moses at that point, but afterwards, as he did take them into the promised land, if that rest had been fully realized, then Psalm 95 would not be talking about it as something present today, and we'd not be talking about it as something present today. So then, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest. Rest here is, I don't think, good works. Seeking to to, uh, follow good works in order to gain salvation. That's not the rest he's talking about but rather experiencing saving faith in Christ that lasts until we meet Him. God did not rest in the sense of ceasing to do good deeds to earn salvation, of course. And this is not the idea of rest here, I don't think. Just resting from our self-righteousness. That's a Pauline idea, but not really what's in view here. The key, rather, is to go back to that seventh day in Genesis 2 and to say, there God says, in a certain, in a way of speaking, find your rest in me forever. You do not come to rest in day six with the creation of man, but rest in me on day seven, the day I created nothing. Find your rest in me. That rest is available for us, and that's the point. Here it is, verse 11 then. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hardening the heart, being deceived by sin, not trusting God's word. These are really big things. So let us strive to enter that rest. You see the irony there? Let us strive. It's a pretty strong word. The Greek word, it speaks of hard, diligent work. Let us strive to enter rest. So it's clearly not the kind of rest that just puts up its feet. Israel's rest in Canaan would not be a matter of finding some lawn chairs and kicking back and sipping lemonade and letting the crops harvest themselves and the enemies scurry off to points unknown. It wasn't that kind of a rest. Similarly, we must never think that hearing God's Word, obeying that Word, and remaining faithful to Christ until we meet Him is a call to ease. We take up our cross and we follow Him. And yet I encourage you, unbeliever, I encourage you, believer, take the words of Jesus to heart. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, I will, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus, I think, reflects here the Sabbath rest of Genesis 2, and the Sabbath rest that is referenced here. That rest is in Him. That rest is in fellowship with Him. So for those who have not trusted Christ as Savior, this is the call to enter that rest in Christ. To bring your sin and your self-dependence and your own pride and to lay them down and to trust His death for your sin, His resurrection for eternal life. And the question for those who do not know Christ, for those that are following Christ, the question for us on one level is, will your name be found in the Lamb's book of life, along with Caleb and Joshua? Or will it be added to the countless unfaithful names that in the end did not enter the rest of trusting obedience in Christ? This passage is a stern warning. Are you heeding God's word? Are you trusting Him each step of the way on life's journey? Are you fighting sin? Are we as a congregation holding one another up and fighting against the deceptiveness of sin and hard hearts together? Encouraging one another to have a tender heart toward the things of God. This is our calling as a church. This is the beauty of the life together in Christ. As the new Joshua of the new covenant, Jesus truly is, as one author says, he is experienced in making a way out of seemingly unconquerable situations. And in a world of attack, a world of war, we find a lot of unconquerable situations. I got an email late last night from a pastor saying, I, we've got people in Afghanistan. We can't get them out. They're going door to door, and they, I, we don't see any other option, but they're going to die. It's, it's not an easy world. It's a world that is bent against Christ. And in a lot of lesser ways, we run into situations like this that we can't fix. 
but we can rest. We can rest in the one who gives his people rest. A fellowship with Christ as the leader of the new covenant. And that brings us to this table today. It is an expression of, it is a testimony of our fellowship with Christ to say that I am walking in this rest. I am heeding His Word. I am walking in obedience with Him. Jesus is my Savior. And I'm holding to Him as that. At this table is people who heed God's sufficient Word and walk in obedient faith. We rejoice in the fellowship of rest that we enjoy in Christ. We commune here with Him. And we commune here with one another as the body of Christ to say that He has found us. He has given us life in His name. He has called us to a life of obedience. And by His grace, we are walking that path. Proclaiming here His death until He comes. So we proclaim here our fellowship with Jesus as those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life by His grace. And as we continue forward trusting Him, we bear witness to that faith in Him by the faithfulness of the life that we live. So this table then is an aspect of our perseverance to the end, of our continuing trust in the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. That my name, by His grace alone, is written in the Lamb's book of life. We come in that spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would steer us now to commune here at this table in a way that is sanctifying. I pray, Father, that we would, gathering here, express our rest in Christ. That this would be far from just ritual. That this would be far from just something that we casually do. But I pray that we would recognize that the privilege to gather around this table has been won by Jesus Christ. And that we would fight hard hearts. We would fight disobedience here saying, Christ is my Savior from sin. For those who can gather, who have followed you, who have entered the waters of baptism, who have proclaimed that they belong to you, may we here deepen in our walk with Jesus, we pray in his name.